Hello and welcome to the Random Works podcast. Today I have Dr. Roshio Mercado, who is currently a postdoc in the Kohli Group at MIT. Before that, Roshio completed an industrial postdoc in the Molecular AI Group at AstraZeneca, where she worked on the development of degenerative models for small molecule drug discovery. And before that, she was a PhD student in Professor Bowen Smith's Molecular Simulation Group at UC Berkeley and EPFL. She received her PhD in Chemistry from UC Berkeley in August 2018 and a BS and chemistry from Caltech in June 2013. Welcome, Russia. Uh, thanks for having me up again. It's really Very good to have you here. You. Uh, you have someone who has had a really fascinating journey through science and both the academy and industry. So where did it all start for you? Were you as a child always someone looking to foray into the sciences or was it some sort of lucky breakthrough that got you over here? No, it's kind of, I think like for most people, it's a very gradual, you end up somehow as a scientist, at least that's how it was for me. Because in school, I was, I was always very good in school. I really like going to school. I was sad when we have to have vacation. Um, and at, at some point, um, I was always kind of leaning a bit more towards the math and science classes. I, I did a bit better than in, you know, the arts or English, um, so, to, so to say. Um, and then when I went to, to college, then I got into Caltech and it's obviously um, like geared towards like scientific fields. So while I was there, um, I was also still like trying to choose between different like science majors. And in the end, I chose chemistry because I thought that's where I felt uh, like I was strongest, maybe. But it was very gradual just people kind of encouraging like ah you're good in math and science you should uh try to take these courses or these courses and then in the end you just end up uh, doing it for a job which is really great that's really interesting and you talked about sort of being fascinated by chemistry in college so was it uh, you finally came about to choosing your major in college or was the fascination with chemistry an even longer one no, I liked all of the, I, I have, I'm one of these person, like you, you really like all the scientific fields and you have such a hard time to choose. Um, my mom makes fun of me for this, um, but I, I felt it was where I was the strongest in, in my chemistry courses. Um, also because I got, I happen to have a lot of chemistry books as well that people were like, when the seniors leave, sometimes they give you a lot of textbooks and stuff. And I was studying the summer before my sophomore year so I can be a bit more prepared um, than I was my freshman year in college. And so I, I spent the summer reading a lot of these textbooks and the chemistry ones were just the ones that appealed to me more. Um, so I kind of gravitated towards that. And then I got really into it after I did the, um, I did the summer research fellowship. Um, that was after my sophomore year, I think. But already I, I started to get involved in summer um, research and once I had that experience, um, it was like solidified for me that I want to, you know, to do research for for a career. That was the best experience of my life. Truly, doing research for a career is a concept. Many sort of get introduced, especially first generation students in academia, get introduced to either in college or if they are lucky in high school, and it's a really really fascinating concept. Yeah, because before before that, you don't really know like what what does this job entail, right? Um, but I was lucky to join. I joined Harry Grace Lab at Caltech. Actually, it was the same lab as Carolyn, 
Um, so I know you interviewed her and uh, it was a really like supportive environment. I enjoyed the work I was doing and, and in the end you're like, I need to do a PhD so that I can one day, you know, hope to start my own research group and then create the same experiences for other people and, you know, train the next generation of scientists, continue doing research. Um, it, it just, it kind of all came together like that very gradually. Uh, truly, and you talked about sort of pouring into research and also uh, at Caltech itself, did you sort of decide to choose on to pour into more of the dry theoretical sort of work rather than the wet lab experimental work that it entailed? Or did you have a chance to experience bo both of the worlds and the dry one suited your interest the best? No, I actually started also as I did, I started doing like synthetic uh, inorganic chemistry uh, because that was um, I, I had this class as a sophomore and I really loved it. So this kind of affected like the professors I contacted uh, for the research opportunities. And when I found Harry's group, I started off doing that. I didn't have um, like more computational classes until my senior year, which is when I also realized, oh, this is also like, this is also amazing. This is actually, um, I, I really enjoyed the, my experience in like wet lab. But uh, after I had StatMec, it kind of, uh, I knew that for my PhD, I wanted to pursue a more computational um, route because I got really fascinated with how you can use computers sort of to accelerate the research that you do in the lab, um, even though I also really enjoyed that as well. Truly so, and in the past decades of sorts, we have seen, especially in the last couple of decades, computing really coming into force in biology and chemistry of sorts, and really um, making it impact felt. And you talked about sort of in your senior year being introduced to computational chemistry, and you sort of uh, in 2013 there was also a landmark computational chemistry Nobel Prize happening, which doesn't really happen for that. Many argue that the chemistry Nobel doesn't go to chemistry nowadays so having a computational chemistry novel is a, even a rare phenomenon and that was quite a time for you to sort of choose to put into concave upsets yeah it's exciting exciting to hear those announcements and then to be like ah people you know this kind of research is exciting in general right not just to you and it can have a big impact so that's uh, yeah that's always nice it's really so. So you headed to sort of Berkeley for grad school. So was it uh, uh, was it because the department at Berkeley fit your interest the best? Did you already have figured out someone to work with, or was it just one of the few schools that you applied to, and the department at Berkeley fit your interest the best? No, I applied to lots of schools, but um, I, I when I did the visit weekend, I met with lots of different professors and the department and. I thought at Berkeley there was a lot more people who I'd be interested to work with. Um, I didn't have anyone specific in mind, but then when I, um, sorry, so then th this helped me kind of to choose that as, as the university um, where I would want to do my PhD. But then I actually ended up working for, for Berend, who I didn't meet with during my visit weekend at all, um, since he's in the chemical engineering department and I applied to chemistry. Um, but I met with him after I had joined had a really great like conversation with him um, from yeah from our very first conversation. It was clear he's very excited about like uh, computational like materials discovery, nanoporous materials, 
um, carbon capture and sequestration. And I got really also sucked in by this and I wanted to, to, to work on that as well. So. That's fascinating. And what did you finally end up choosing as a project that will enthuse you for the next three and four years and became the crux of your doctoral thesis? In um, For my PhD, like what did I do in the beginning? Um, yeah, I think in the beginning, um, Baron had me working on a few different projects with like older um, students in the group to kind of get started because I had no computational experience when I joined. So I was doing like synthetic inorganic chemistry before that, right? And um, I learned, uh, I had to learn how to program pretty much. I had to learn how to run these um, molecular, molecular, not molecular dynamics. I was doing Monte Carlo um, at first. So I was working with older students. And I think at that time we were working with any postdoc and I don't remember, but uh, yeah, so I joined a project where we're doing like high throughput screenings um, computationally of um, this uh, nanoporous materials genome. Um, so that was like a very exciting way to get introduced to the field. Um, yeah. So I, I started off doing that, like Gran Canonical Monte Carlo on MOFs and other sorts of nanoporous materials for um, methane storage applications, actually. That's fascinating. And was, was that something that became eventually sort of mobbed into your doctoral thesis or the doctoral projects were totally different? No, exactly. It was, it's all, all related. So that's kind of started that. And then I, I started a new project that was um, on force field development, actually. Um, so developing better models, um, which we could use to study um, carbon capture um, and separations inside this particular MOF. So it was MOF 74. Um, since the kind of existing classical models weren't accurately capturing the um, uh, the interactions of the, these different small gas molecules um, at inside these frameworks since they bind a little bit too tightly. So I worked on that. Then I worked on a few other projects with a lot of experimentalists actually um, looking at, into designing different sorts of uh, nanoporous materials uh, also for carbon capture applications or methane storage. Um, I think I did a project also with Corey on xenon krypton separations. Um, so all these small gas separations pretty much and how we can simulate them using uh, Monte Carlo or other atomistic simulations. It's really exciting. Oh, truly, you talked about how the field was sort of really blooming and exciting, especially brought on by the Nobel and all. And in a similar kind of thing, computational side of things were also being revolutionized as the famous ImageNet revolution happened and deep learning sort of started kick, getting kicked off and all. So what the implications, especially to chemistry and material science, already apparent when you started off during grad school or it took a few more years before it was sort of truly being implemented and the tools were being leveraged mm -hmm. in the chemistry community also. Yeah, I'm, sh I'm sure there were people who were like aware of these things when I had started my PhD. Uh, to me, it was not yet on the horizon because I was still like trying to, I feel like, learn everything I could about um, molecular simulations, um, like classical molecular simulations. Um, there was, so Corey Simon, who was also a PhD student in the group, he was really into uh, like 
these uh, kind of classical machine learning approaches in order to predict um, the like gas absorption capacity of some of these materials. Um, so that could help using these machine learning methods like random forests could help you avoid doing these um, molecular simulations, which would take maybe, um, it would take a, a bit more time. They're not expensive compared to if you were to do, you know, calculations using higher level of theory, they're already cheaper. But if you're going to screen thousands and thousands of these materials, the cost adds up. So if you can um, avoid running all of these calculations using an even um, less expensive machine learning model um, to predict their absorption capacity, then um, why not? So he was really into this. Uh, and I think he he's the one who kind of started uh, working on these topics within the group. And then we all kind of started picking it up from, from him and seeing what he's doing. Uh, then I also started seeing a few other papers, actually like from uh, from Connor's like early work. Uh, and uh, you start to see how it can maybe be applied to your field or how you can continue to build upon um, the way in which, you know, deep learning is used for these kind of molecular property prediction or molecular design tasks. So it was it was also very gradual for me. I don't think there was a point where I was like, oh, we need to absolutely use machine learning. It started with like, oh, we can use, you know, machine learning methods in order to, you know, accelerate the way we make some of these predictions. But then at some point you're like, oh, we can use it even more actually. Uh, so to just design the, the molecules themselves. So when you started off utilizing machine learning and deep learning techniques, what's the uh, impact over the years down the line to, to today? Was it apparent to you or has it sort of crossed your wildest expectations also that you had then of, of the impact it would have? This is a tricky question because I think even now, if you ask people like, what is the impact of some of these tools? You, get, you might get lots of different answers. Um, but for sure, like these kind of um, deep generative models, like uh, predictive models using deep learning, they are being used at companies. I mean, there's entire companies that have developed their, their whole business model based on these tools and using them to uh, discover new molecules for, for different sorts of applications, both like in the materials and in the pharmaceutical sector, and I'm sure in lots of other sectors as well. So there is absolutely an impact. Um, sorry, what was your question actually? Because I, I was, I forgot, I lost my train of thought. Yeah, so when you just started off utilizing them, did you sort of gauge the impact it yes. would have? Or has it defied your best of the expectations that you yeah, have? Yeah, I think at the time I, I was not fully aware of the impact uh, that these things could have. I just thought this is very, very cool. Uh, and I would like to try it. I think now I understand much better that these tools have the potential to, you know, save us billions and billions of dollars in the development of new drugs, for example, help us, you know, discover new drugs on much shorter timescales. Uh, yeah, de definitely. I see it much better now. At the time, I just thought it was really cool that, you know, you can train a model in, in a few hours to start generating molecules um, that look chemically, like, they look chemically reasonable. I'm not going to say, you know, if they are uh, synthesizable or not, but molecules that look chemically reasonable. And you have spent, you know, your entire PhD, you know, five years learning trying to become an expert, you know, in this field so that you can, you know, start to draw like 
reasonable looking structures. You know, people spend years and years building up this expertise and these models can learn it in a few hours or sometimes like a few minutes, depending on how specific you want to get. Um, so I, th I think it's really powerful. Uh, uh, truly, and um, while I sort of reminded of an aphorism, a fam famous aphorism in statistics by the statistician George Box, if I'm not wrong, where he talked about how all models are wrong, but some are useful. And it's a very necessary lens through which models have to be viewed, especially in today's times where every second model claims to utilize machine learning techniques. Yeah, exactly. But the thing is also like people also make mistakes. Even experts, you know, don't have all the answers. You might have your expert opinion, um, but that doesn't mean it's always going to be right. Um, so the idea, I think, is very powerful that we can use deep learning, um, you know, based models in order to help us, you know, offload some of these very challenging decisions, like which molecule are you gonna, you know, move forward with in your in your pipeline. If we could offload these kind of decisions to models, I think that uh, you know, I, I think that has the potential to to change the whole field, to to really make an impact. Because yeah, people can also choose the wrong molecule. It doesn't. Pe people can also argue about what is the different experts are going to say a different thing. So I really believe in these models. If you haven't picked that up. Truly so. And uh, so you talked about how you had an interesting time in grad school, sort of uh, doing an eclectic set of projects and all. So, but during grad school, did you also suffer from the ubiquitous imposter syndrome, where you had brief or, or many moments of epiphany of things not going well and all? And how did you confront it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think everyone, everyone feels like this, right? Even like the most the people you think are like the smartest people in your class, when you realize like they also feel like an imposter, you know, at some point you start to understand like, oh, this is normal, you know, this is okay. It's okay to feel like this, but this is not going to prevent me from, you know, trying to move forward in my career. This is not going to make me, this shouldn't make me want to quit because it's a part of life. There's always going to be people who know more than you in some area or another especially when you're in this kind of very interdisciplinary fields. Maybe one day you're in a room full of people who are all expert in deep learning and another day you're in a room full of people who are all expert in medicinal chemistry. And, you know, obviously I'm not going to be expert in all of these things, especially not at this stage in my career. Um, but uh, so, so kind of accepting that, I, I don't think, I, I don't suffer from it so much anymore. I think I just accept it. Like I'm constantly growing, you know, as long as I, I know more than I did yesterday, then that's that's good enough for me. Truly, so your answer actually nails down the very essence of science, where it's a more of an iterative process than being sort of being etched in stone. And it is something that uh, uh, we have talked a lot about in random works in some other episodes too. And something, especially in today's times, where people tend to sort of delve into absolutisms in terms of scientific truths or pretty much any truth for that matter in this hyper, for, um, 
polarized world, it's very important to remember that uh, scientific facts or scientific theories meet the test of science by wider acceptance by the community and not on their own, not because of the people proposing them. And that's something we have especially seen in today's science where some people have utilized their own expertise in a different field to sort of portray themselves as expert in some other fields with devastating consequences, as we say. And it is really important to remember without something of this sort, having a wider understanding of this sort in the public world can help save more lives and all, as we saw, where we have the presidents of countries sort of touting conspiracy theories and all. And these have devastating consequences in terms of lives lost and the way healthcare systems get impacted. And you made some really great points out there. Yeah, absolutely. I think also if it helps to be surrounded by people who are supportive, which I try to do, you know, if, if someone, I don't want to, you know, work with someone who is like constantly criticizing other people and like putting other people down. And I don't know, to me, that's not, that's not so appealing. Don't want to work with, with I, I instead try to surround my, myself with people who are supportive, right? And constructive because you're not going to be perfect, right? Everyone is going to make mistakes. But if you have a way, if you have people who can communicate, you know, the way that you can improve or something you did wrong in a constructive fashion, uh, then I think this this helps. Uh, don't surround yourself with people who are going to keep putting you down and trying to make you feel stupid. Usually, I think people who try to make others feel stupid or very insecure themselves. Truly so. And it also brings to, uh, you made yet another great point about how science is a very collaborative enterprise. And it's not something, and we as a scientific community, especially the way the prizes are doled out, we tend to portray as science as something that, uh, based on the way the plane tickets to Stockholm get awarded in October, one thinks of pretty much the white male geniuses as the epitome of good science in general, but it's really important to remember, especially in today's science where you have gigantic projects like CERN or the Human Genome Project, where you have tons of people across different continents collaborating on a single call. And it's not something that outside of three people who got the plane ticket to Stockholm, and traditionally they have been old white men, and they are not the only ones doing science. And it's something really important to remember the very collaborative nature of science. Yeah, absolutely. I think these kind of prizes are very like nice to also get kind of some inspiration, but uh, it shouldn't define you. Like, I hope that is not, I don't think that is most people's like ultimate goal. Like I need a Nobel Prize because there's also way, way more scientists who are all doing fantastic research. You know, you can't give everyone a, such a prize, but that doesn't mean that your research is not important or that, you know, what you're doing is not valuable. So absolutely. But truly so. And uh, in terms of uh, you to sort of uh, really fantastic computational work and all. So what is the percentage of time that you actually sort of spend tackling a problem and sort of, uh, uh, and what is the uh, percentage of time that you actually sort of spend thinking about it, sort of uh, writing expository articles and all, and sort of communicating the results and all. So is there any divide of sorts that you have, or is it something of case-by-case process, a thing of sorts? Yeah, I don't know if I have actually thought about how much time I spend thinking about problems versus writing versus, uh, because like, would you include coding, like time spent 
coding as writing or is this thinking about the problem? Because sometimes you don't, I mean, you can also realize some things as you're coding up your, you know, your model. So um, I don't know if I have a good answer. Um, maybe 50-50, it's, but it's also, there's also time you spend reading, right? Reading the literature and, um, and then that, if we include that in the thinking part, then that would be a bit more. So it's hard for me to say, I would have to really sit down and think about it. Cause I think it also depends on the projects. And uh, so, yeah, I totally get that. And uh, are there times when you sort of, there was absolutely no progress in a particular project of sorts and all. And how do you tackle that sort of frustration that comes with it that uh, rather than shackling your other projects and all, like how do you sort of get over it and how do you tackle those sort of circumstances? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've had so many projects that just didn't work. Um, or you, you know, you think that you're gonna observe something and you just don't, and there's kind of nothing interesting. I mean, at, at some point, I think you have to also know just when to let it go, when to let that project go and, and move on to the next thing, because you could also spend some time maybe writing up some mediocre results, but if it's not gonna be useful to the greater community, I don't know, there's maybe no point to kind of be littering the literature, right? Um, so it's hard. I don't and how to deal with it. I think maybe I was more personally affected when I was younger, like earlier in my PhD. I think now I just accept as a part of life. But also now I think I have a better sense of earlier on if it's not if a project is not going to work, kind of cu cutting it, like or how do you say cutting it earlier on, uh, before you invest all your time like um, on it, but. It still absolutely happens. So it's just a part of life. I think part of research. I think if you're always, you know, all of your projects are, are working out and that's that's great. That's one way to approach things, but maybe you could afford to take a little more risk. Truly so. And uh, uh, coming to your sort of fantastic journey from uh, after completing your PhD, your transition to an industrial role. So was it something always on the cards that you always want to explore academia outside of the traditional university setting? And that role provided a great chance for you to do so. And how was your whole experience like? And if you are permitted to do so, what did, exactly did you work on? Yeah, no, of course. Um... I, I think what motivated me to pursue that was, first of all, I had kind of just finished my PhD and I wanted to explore something um, in an industrial setting because I didn't have any of that sort of experience. Um, I was, I knew I was leaning maybe like 80%, I was leaning towards the academic route, uh, but you know, 20% of me wasn't sure. I, I don't know if I'm making up these numbers, but I wanted to kind of experience what it's like also because if you, if you ever become a professor, which I hope to become a professor, um, and you're gonna have students, not all of them are gonna want to go into academia. So I thought it would be really good to have such an experience under my belt where you get to see what is it like to work in a company. Um, and this was a good kind of balance because it's still a postdoc. So it's an industrial postdoc um, in the position, the specific, my specific position, I knew I was gonna have the opportunity to publish a lot and you know work with um, how do you say like a public data so so that I could publish my results and uh, I kind of felt I had not much to lose which uh, it is also like 
it is a bit of a you have to kind of choose. I mean, some people would suggest if you're gonna if you want to stay in academia to just pursue an academic postdoc directly after your PhD and so on. But to me, it felt like the right choice, and I still think it was the right choice. I had a great experience um, at AstraZeneca. Um, I really liked my team, and it was also very interesting to see how kind of the structure is at the company. Um, granted, it's also abroad, so I'm I'm not sure to some extent how much it translates between different countries, but at least how it was in Sweden. Um, and uh, I, I really, I really enjoyed it. It's nice, right? Like not to have to worry about funding, for instance. Um, at the same time now, I do wish I had more experience, you know, writing grants, um, which is something that I'm trying to foco focus on for my second postdoc back in, in academia now. But, for the, for the most part, it's really great. I feel like you really can focus on just your research, at least as an industrial postdoc um, um, at my company. And yeah, I had a, I had a really great time. And I, I would encourage other people, if you're like considering this, if you're also not sure, to just try it out. Because I think there is not much risk. If, there's also a lot of postdocs um, in my program who they knew they wanted to pursue an industrial um, career. And many of them stayed on at AstraZeneca afterwards or went on to different companies. So it's also you know, a good way to kind of make this transition. So yeah, I really, I had a great experience. And what did you work on over there? I was working, that's where I started, like, I, I made kind of the transition from molecular simulations to deep learning, um, especially applied to small molecule drug discovery. So I was working on the development of deep uh, molecular generative models, specifically graph-based um, generative models. And yeah, that was, uh, that was a whirlwind because the first, the whole, you know, first few months, you really just like reading and reading and reading the literature. And um, I actually also started right away uh, coding and like, um, you know, developing my models. And I had something working within a few months, but you, it's not working as well as like as you as you wanted to, right? So, so it's that actually improving on you know the initial kind of model that took. Um, a lot longer, but it was a really great way to, you know, learn more about, like, become a better programmer, learn about better, like, uh, you know, good uh, programming practices, and uh, yeah, it was it was great. So eventually, mm -hmm. it. I also really liked at, at Astra, like, um, we were encouraged to publish also not only like write the publications, but also publish our code. Um, so I was able to publish um, things open source, which I really liked. Uh, truly so. And uh, you talked about sort of uh, having the leeway to do research without bothering about grants and all. What do you ask? So having been in the industry, what do you feel about its thrust on basic fundamental research that typically has been the domain of academy, uh, university academias ever since the uh, bell labs or the days of yours ceased to exist of sorts. So what do you think about the focus on basic research out there and how do you think industry will play a role in the coming years and decades in sort of furthering basic research? Yeah, I think it probably depends very much on the team you are in. Like in my team, we had a lot of um, kind of freedom to explore things within the realm of like, uh, for, for example, for me, my, my postdoc project was supposed to be on graph-based molecular design. Um, so if it can kind of fall within this umbrella, uh, then I think uh, I had a lot of freedom to, to pursue that. Of course, you know, with like your supervisor's approval and so on. 
but generally um, they they were very excited to um, explore lots of like new architectures for these sorts of uh, problems. So I, I think it depends. Maybe, I don't know how it is at, at lots of other companies, but I think absolutely you can do a lot of like very good basic research at a company. It doesn't have to be just in academia. Um, and you can kind of gauge that when you're you know, going through the interview process um, to see, you can also see how, how open are people to talk about what, you know, what they are working on um, and, and ask lots of questions. If that's something that's important to you and but you still want to go to industry, you can for sure certainly do that. Truly so. And so coming back into academia, when your current role at MIT, so are you continuing on with the research that you started at your uh, first postdoc in AstraZeneca or are you switching to something totally different? No, I'm not, I'm not switching to something totally different because I felt like I made a big switch between my PhD and my Astra postdoc. Um, so I, and I'm kind of landed on a research area, which I really, really like uh, love. And I feel like I can contribute, like make important contributions to it. So I'm staying in the same research area and now kind of building upon some of the research I did at AstraZeneca. So looking into uh, synthesizability constrained molecular generation. Since I, I was doing a lot of molecular design and uh, uh, using deep molecular generative models at Astra, but uh, the models I was working on, there is no kind of, uh, we're not telling the models anything about synthesizability. So it's generating a lot of very nice molecules, but uh, in order for these models to be, you know, much more useful to, to the people who would be using them in, in a real drug discovery project, the molecules need to be synthesizable. Otherwise, you're just going to be filtering through a lot of garbage. Um, so I think this is a really important problem to be focusing on right now. Um, and I feel like, uh, yeah, I have the right set of tools to tackle it. So that's what I'm I'm focusing on now that I've I've just started. So I just started a few a few weeks ago. That's really interesting. And uh, when we talk about sort of AI's application to the life sciences, especially we have seen, uh, typically in the last few months, there has been a lot of news about uh, the protein folding problem and how AlphaFold of DeepMind and Rosetta Fold from David Baker's lab at University of Washington have sort of revolutionized the field of sorts and all. So do you see the same sort of impact AI having in molecular design, drug design and all? Do you see some sort of breakthrough moment of that sort happening in the next couple of years or perhaps in this decade? Yes, I, I mean, if I see it, this, uh, I don't know if I see it, but I, I hope to see it. I think um, proving that AI is actually, you know, helping to let's, let's say just within the like drug discovery context, that AI is truly helping you to discover new molecules faster and, you know, with better accuracy, you know, you have better molecules being generated more creatively, whatever. Um, this is quite hard and I'm not sure, I would like to see a publication from like any large pharmaceutical company uh, where they have maybe show some statistics for uh, projects where they incorporate some of these like deep generative models or AI based, you know, molecular prediction tools and so on, molecular optimization tools as well. Um, and showing how either it has helped them discover molecules that they might not have discovered otherwise or that you know, the whole initial um, like hit discovery and lead optimization phases have gone on much 
much more quickly than it would have. But that's very hard to show, as you can imagine, because you're not going to do two simultaneous. Like, how do you prove that a human wasn't going to think of this? You know, that it was the model was being more creative than a human. It's it's a bit challenging, and I think. Um, proving that these tools are actually having an impact. This is a bit um, difficult, um, but this is for sure beyond my scope of what I can do. Uh, but I think in a, in a larger company, um, there would be a lot more resources to to look into this. So I'm, I'm looking, I hope that someone is seeing, trying to quantify this because that would also help, you know, prove that these tools are helping and help you get more investment into this as well and, and so on. Um, so. At the end, you have to show that these tools are truly accelerating the process, right? That it's outperforming the more traditional um, like drug discovery paradigms that you have currently. Truly, so in this, you talked a lot. Oh, you made a good point about sort of uh, bigger companies having bigger resources to devote, or even in the academic setting, bigger universities with larger persons having greater resources to devote to these kind of problems. So, somewhere down the line, do you see equity being a problem in terms of the way the research is carried out, especially research that requires so much of computation power and all? Do you see some? Uh, 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 some uh, industries or some some labs in either in industry or in academia having an inherent advantage because of the university or the or the company they are affiliated to and how do you see sort of this shaping out to be is this something that only big groups with big funding can do or there is still a role for smaller teams to contribute in their own manner no um yeah, that's very that's a very good question, and I'm not sure I'm the best uh, person to to answer this. But I think, and this is already kind of the case, right? Like uh, with a lot of these like big natural language uh, models. I mean, I think there is still a role for even if you don't have as many resources as a larger team. First of all, there is always going to be another team that has more resources with you, but it's also a question of like, what are you actually, you know, are you using your resources as, as best you can, or are you just kind of using like, um, you know, maybe not the right architecture, the right deep learning architecture for a model and just trying to see kind of what you get in this high throughput way and not being careful about the types of calculations that you're doing, maybe getting a bit wasteful or sloppy because you can afford to be. Um, you, you know, it, I don't think necessarily having more resources translates to better research, but um, even if you have less resources, you can still, you know, um, make other contributions, especially if like a project is open sourced and such, you can contribute to different components of it. Um, you can also do um, projects on a smaller scale or with fewer data. Um, I think, uh, it's absolutely, I, what I'm trying to say is that I, I don't think it's only these uh, big companies who are going to have a monopoly. I hope not. Then you miss out on a lot of different perspectives or ideas that maybe someone in a smaller team would have thought of that wouldn't have been thought of. At a, yeah. I don't know. It's a good question. <laughs> 
Yeah, these are actually, as we talk about these things, uh, it's really important to uh, sort of talk about the equity aspect of it and some other fields, especially sort of human computer interaction and all, they have deeper problems to solve because as we see, they, those things are uh, AI models are being applied left, right and center, practically every other paper or grant claims to do something related to AI. But as we talk about devastating consequences, sort of uh, when people actually interact with it or sort of like thrusting down, it is sort of akin to sort of thrusting down drugs that has just been generated by AI model without any critical vetting of sorts. No one really will be sort of agreeable to that sort of thing. And these are the sort of things we need to talk about a lot because one needs to understand these sort of te technologies, no matter how revolutionary, they are in the one size fits all panacea to each and every problem out there. And each and everything requires experts like you and all to sort of be a part of that process through which it sort of underlies society's interaction with these things. And it's not a really a straight line path and rather it's right a, a really, really iterative and collaborative process all out the way. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you, uh, something you talked about having uh, a while earlier, you commented on sort of surrounding yourself with good people and having good uh, uh, people around you to work with and all who sort of encourage you and all and are a positive influence on you. So how important have mentors and collaborators have been in your journey through science, both in academia and industry? And who are some great mentors of yours? And is there any advice of theirs that has always stuck with you and that you also pass on to your own mentors? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've had fantastic mentors over the years, like even, you know, before, you know, university since, since, um, uh, like school, like in middle school, I had a really great teacher who, you know, really encouraged me to pursue these things, um, like math and science. I, I mean, but um, even now, I mean, I, I I don't have just like one or two mentors. I I feel like I have you know dozens and dozens of of mentors. I have um, you know my past collaborators um, who offer lots of advice, especially now, like if you have old colleagues um, um, who not old, like in age, I mean, like past colleagues, sorry, who are now like also looking into the academic or sorry, the, like a career as a faculty member, for example. Um, so I have some colleagues who are now, you know, starting off their own research groups at a university as new faculty or who are you know also in like the later stage of their postdocs, uh, a bit more like me, and looking to apply to lots of these positions. Yes, we talk a lot and 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 support each other a lot, um, and that, I think that's really important. Um, people are really willing to like offer advice, like strategic advice in terms of like when should you be applying for this or like how to choose you know research projects, how to you know, how to manage, how to be a good leader, um, even like more specific things like how to write, how to give constructive criticism, all, all these sorts of things. So I, ha I have kind of people that I go to for each of these things. I still keep in touch as well with my PhD supervisor, of course, and he also um, has uh, lots of valuable advice. Um, postdocs for my PhD group, for instance, um, like Beth, uh, she's a professor now. Um, 
uh, an assistant professor and uh, she oh, she has so much advice uh, that has been really useful to me when it comes to like applying um, or your strategy around applying to faculty positions. Um, Valencia Witherspoon, who was one of my collaborators during my PhD, she's given me a lot of advice on like applying for fellowships um, and that's been really valuable. Um, so just like little like little things here and there, like conversations every few months with a lot of a lot of these people, but it's it really means a lot um, because it keeps you going, right? <laughs> Gives you inspiration for you know what what you can do next. So. Sorry. Yeah, so truly so. And you made some really great points out there. And uh, is there any distinctive mentoring style that you have of your zone that you pass on to your sort of students and all? Have you created any courses and all? And is there any distinctive mentoring style of yours and something that you hope to sort of pursue on or sort of refine more as you choose the, as you to, uh, talked about sort of transitioning to being a professor in academia? So, mm -hmm. what is the distinctive piece of advice that is associated with you? Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I've had a few students so far. I, I guess the, the main piece of advice that I, I try to pass on to people is that, uh, first of all, like we're, we're all, I say this too much, so if anyone is, who knows me is listening, they're going to laugh. But like we're really all on our own journey, right? And um, you, you shouldn't compare yourself to other people or see, you know, try to determine where you should be based on what you see other people are doing. You know, do what you feel is 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 right for you and, and don't compare to others. Um, so I think this this is first of all, like very important for your mental health. If you're constantly comparing to like lots of other very successful people, you're always gonna feel inadequate. Um, but uh, the same can be said for like the types of problems you work on, right? So work on what you want to work on. Don't uh, kind of get carried away with something just because you think this is, you know, what you should be working on. Um, so I, I, I guess this is so something that I, I try to pass on. And you know, we're constantly growing. We're gonna make lots and lots of mistakes. It's it's okay. Um, so. Truly, so you talked about uh, sort of making, uh, uh, you made a really great point about sort of making lots of mistakes and a distinctive feature of science, uh, unlike any other profession, is the luxury to make mistakes by the plenty and all. This is not something <laughs> that a normal adult can get away with in any other industry for that matter. But uh, science is some place where making mistakes of sort is a privilege given to everyone. And it's a truly underrated aspect of, uh, of science as a whole. And it also points out to the the failability and the human nature of scientists where, and sort of puts into context the absurd lone genius narratives that are typically set around scientists and while earlier we talked how science is a very collaborative process and it's also a process replete with all of us making tons and tons of mistakes. Yeah, and you really shouldn't be afraid to ask for help as well. I think that's something I struggled with uh, um, as well since like uh, during my time as like an undergrad and maybe early on in my PhD, like you think asking a question or something is gonna make you look stupid or, I mean, the thing is you are still learning and people know that you are still you know, learning and on your way to becoming an expert, you're not yet an expert. Um, so 
it's better to ask the questions earlier on. Um, that way you get the help that you need and that can actually help you progress faster. If you have you know, the right mentor, they are not gonna judge you for asking lots of questions, I think. Um, so I would absolutely encourage that as well to, yeah, at some point it also can become like too late, like maybe like three years have passed and you kind of like still have this question that you had maybe when you were in your first year of your PhD or something, maybe you should have asked before because now it feels a bit awkward to ask, right? So try, try just to ask lots of questions and surround yourself with people if, if, you, if you can, um, who, you know, will be happy to help. Uh, so usually people are, is my experience, but maybe I have been very lucky. Oh, truly so. And how exactly has the pandemic affected your work of sorts and your research? Uh, since it's a computational thing, uh, your research is mostly computation, one would feel there's not been much of an impact. But do you miss any uh, um, sort of experiences from the pre-pandemic life and sort of like uh, uh, chatting over a cup of coffee over seminars and all with your collaborators and friends and all and is there any aspect of science that you're actually looking to retain once we sort of ease back to a semblance of normalcy that some things that we have picked up over the pandemic times and something that you feel that we should stick with as and when we ease back to normalcy yeah absolutely yeah i i mean the pandemic has been hard for everyone and, and sometimes i do feel very lucky because i have been able to continue my research um, because most of my work is in many ways running things remotely on a cluster. I'm not even where the cluster is to begin with, right? You're in an office. So in that sense, working from home versus working in the office, it doesn't make any difference really because you're still able to carry out your, your research. Um, but uh, especially I'm a very extroverted person, um, it appears. And it's been very isolating the past year, like working from home, uh, not seeing colleagues uh, very often. Um, it's not, I don't think it's good for morale, but I try to keep a you know, good attitude because it's, I mean, it's important, right? That we take these measures in order to control the spread of the virus. So, and everybody has to make these sacrifices. It's not, it's not just you who is alone. Like everybody, it's a little bit um, lonely these days, right? Um, so hopefully, um, it will be better soon in a year, a few years, who knows. Um, but uh, at, at least I feel I have less to complain about than other people because I have been able to continue my work. I know some of my friends, they, uh, there was a few months where they couldn't go into their labs, you know, when they're doing physically the experiments and that just really set back their, their research. So I really, uh, I mean, that, that's, that's really terrible in that sense. You can still do other things, sure, but you can't really do what is what you went, what you really wanted to do, right? Like you just start a new postdoc and you're really excited to carry out your experiments and then you can't go in the lab. Okay. So, but uh, no, it's it's absolutely it, it's it's okay. Some things I hope to retain after I, I like that people are not traveling so much um, because of <laughs> the climate. Um, and I, I think we should not be traveling um, um, so much. If, you know, wherever we can minimize our travel, um, just be more environmentally conscious. I like these aspects, um, but other th other than that, I know I miss you know being able to to uh, interact with people on a daily basis. So this was very important to me, and and it's nice here because now we are allowed to come to campus. 
Um, so at, at least here at, at MIT, so we have to wear a mask um, the whole time and we have to do weekly COVID tests. Maybe now it's bi-weekly um, and you have to have proof of vaccination and so on. There's a bunch of other requirements. Um, so that's been a, already like a huge uh, improvement for, for me. Uh, but I think maybe I've spent way too much of my first few weeks here, like getting coffees for people and not doing enough work just because I missed so much this human interaction. But it's 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 definitely, yeah, I miss it. Uh, truly so. I'm coming to your work. Uh, so uh, how do you see the potential impact of AI in drug designing as well as the overall in chemistry and biology over the next few years and decades? How do you see the landscape sort of changing? Do you see even more revolutionary acts happening? Or do you see a sense of stagnation coming in or something of that sort? Where do you think you're headed next? And how, what promises the future for right. you? No, I absolutely believe in AI-driven like molecular design and not just for drug discovery, but also like for you know accelerating the discovery of promising compounds in other fields or promising materials, for example. Um, uh, so, if you want someone to tell you like this is not going to, you know, this is has been stagnating, don't don't talk to me because I, I don't believe that. Um, I, I think there's still like where these technologies, at, at least when we're talking about like deep molecular generative models, this is fairly new, right? It's in the past five years that people have been working on on these sorts of um, tools and developing them. And there's still a lot that we can do to improve them and make them even more useful. They're already useful in the drug discovery setting, right? Um, and there's still lots of things like that I see as low hanging fruit for things that we can improve in these models to make them even more useful, like the synthesizability constraint generation is one example. Um, being able, for example, to take into account um, entire protein structures is something which could also be um, really, really useful. So there's lots of different avenues people can explore. I, I don't think the field is stagnating at all. If anything, I think we're reaching a point where like, we know they are useful and how can we make them even more useful um, to the people who would be using them like actual like, chemists in the lab. So yeah, I, I really think that uh, this is something we should be studying. Um, uh, truly so. And uh, you have been someone who has been a really sort of pioneering and inspirational figure in uh, with your journey and the, the, in science and all. And yet there have been some, uh, for too long, there have been issues like gender disparity and bias and discrimination against underrepresented groups that have plagued academia in general. So have you been at the receiving end at any point of time? And if yes, how did you confront it? Uh, or were, as, uh, were any mentee of yours impacted and you had to sort of confront it on the, their behalf or something mm -hmm. of that sort? Yeah, I mean, this is like, <laughs> certainly like I have been at the receiving end of this. I've also seen my colleagues at the receiving end of this. I don't know many women uh, who haven't been at the receiving end of like gender-based like discrimination or harassment or something. Um, I, 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 I don't know anyone actually. Um, who is one of my close like either colleagues or, or friends who has not experienced this. Um, I, I, so it's, um, I don't know, I, I don't want to like go into any like specific uh, 
experiences and so on but it's definitely been really important um to have other like women to talk about it with and say like you know are they because sometimes like when people do these kind of uh uh when people discriminate or you know do something to make you feel like less of a person so they do it like so that you can't always like was it because i'm a woman or are they really like because of something else like that they leave some doubt so that you're never totally certain like maybe it was something maybe you are there is something you have done that you deserve this kind of treatment but there there isn't and i think it's been really good to have like other women to talk about these experiences with um and realize that they, the problem is not you the problem is them um, and that's one of the things that motivates me to want to become a professor that I want to be able to have a bigger impact on, um, you know, th these kind of things change the environment at whatever institution I, I end up in it or, you know, I wouldn't want to anyways go to an institution that has a reputation for discrimination against women or this kind of, um, I, I wouldn't choose that to begin with, but you can always improve, right? And make the environment more inclusive um, and more equitable for all students. So that's something I, I one of the, my motivations for wanting to become a professor um, at a university, absolutely. And I had, uh, yeah, for some of these, uh, I've had really supportive mentors, like my PhD advisor, he was really supportive um, throughout my entire PhD. Um, that's one of the also one of the reasons I joined his group. I felt that he is a very like um, a feminist. I guess is the the right word to say. Like he's very supportive of of women as researchers. And um, I yeah, I, I I really it was nice to have his support um, throughout um, the whole PhD as well as the other you know people in my group who are also very supportive and have been um, so. Yeah, it's, there is people who I think, you know, continue to have this kind of backwards mentality, sometimes like not consciously um, as well. And in, in, in some cases, I think it's good to, if you can bring it up with them. I have had some encounters with people where, you know, they don't realize that they're um, doing something that is disrespectful or um, kind of biased against women and you point it out and they're like, Oh, I, di I didn't realize I was doing that. And they actually changed the behavior. So if you feel safe to do that, I think you can in some cases. But in, in other cases, like it's just way too extreme. Like um, that you, it's hard to know if you should say something or, or not or call them out. So it's a very hard question, a very, I guess, a sensitive topic um, because it for sure happens. Um, but, yeah, I hope I hope I, I I hope the the culture is changing, and I do see it changing already. People, you know, are trying to improve on their biases, and I think uh, things are becoming better. Uh, truly, so Anna, it's really important to sort of uh, remember that uh, diversity, inclusivity, and uh, and inclusion aren't just sort of buzzwords or something to sort of uh, to just sort of 
go on with the diet, whether it's something that actually sort of improves uh, our science and us as scientists too. And that's why like sort of encouraging diversity in sort of uh, the student population all, there is a lot of talk about uh, sort of uh, not enough people being there, but it's more about sort of exclusion rather than sort of dearth of talent and all. And in typical in AI models, we talk about diversity of training sets and something of that sort, like even in real life, having a diverse set of people around you is good for both your personal and professional development of sorts. Yeah, exactly. You want as many different perspectives as you as you can. You don't want to exclude someone just because of their background or their appearance or how, because they are different from you. Um, I think uh, people are realizing that's not a good way to do science. Uh, truly so, especially in uh, the, as we talk about hyper-partisan times where one doesn't really need a sort of sound reasons to sort of alert something of that sort, and you have people twisting it to their own agendas to malicious extent, and it is something really important to be cognizant of and sort of not allow sort of uh, things like uh, sort of like judging someone on basis of their or even their nationality or something of that sort. We have seen the enormous consequences when you have public leaders calling uh, the, the COVID-19 virus because of the place that originated from or the, something of that sort. It leads to uh, direct discrimination attacks against innocent people. And it is something that we all need to be cognizant of both as scientists and more importantly as humans. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I just can't believe like that some people like feel comfortable. Like, okay, I can, I that some people don't even realize that their beliefs are wrong and they have no hesitancy to say something, which is clearly harassment. Um, and they don't even, it doesn't even register. Like, but um, like, like I said, I think sometimes also the people who most need to be attending these kind of like DEI workshops are, <laughs> not the people necessarily attending, like I think people should be required. So that they realize hmm, maybe I shouldn't be either saying or doing these sorts of, you know, um, things uh, <laughs> under any setting, so, yeah. Truly, so you made some really great points out there. And this has been a really fantastic conversation with you on your extremely terrific and fantastic journey through science and life. And finally, as a Running Works podcast tradition, which three people would you like to come and divulge their own experience in a random walk? I guess I, I thought a little bit about this. So one of the people I'd really like to hear from is uh, Valencia Witherspoon. So I mentioned her earlier. She's a postdoc. Um, at the NIH um, currently, and uh, I would love to hear about her journey into science. Um, then I had um, a colleague from my PhD group, so Mohamed Musawi, and he's now doing a postdoc in um, Frank Noe's group in Berlin. And so I'd love to hear also a bit about his journey. Um, and then uh, maybe also um, Simon Olson, he's a, a new assistant professor at Chalmers. Um, so it would also be interesting to hear from him. So but I guess those would be my, my, my three choices. Those are some terrific nominees. And thank you. Thank you for coming and indulging us in a very fascinating run. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here.